Section 4 of A Treatise on Foreign Teas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jamie Todd. A Treatise on Foreign Teas by Hugh Smith. The Manner of Using. Foreign tea, as before observed, being taken as two principal meals of our daily aliment, is undoubtedly one great reason of the constitution of the people having suffered an entire change in its system. That vigor, spirits, and longevity which characterized us in the last century is totally subverted. Disease, dismay, and debility now lead us prematurely to the grave, where we end an existence too deplorable to excite the least desire for a longer continuance. Dr. Priestley states, very justly, in his medical essays, that it is curious to observe the revolution which hath taken place within this century in the constitutions of the inhabitants of Europe. Inflammatory diseases more rarely occur, and in general are much less rapid and violent in their progress than formerly, nor do they admit of the same antiphlogistic method of cure which was practiced with success a hundred years ago. The experienced Sydenham makes forty ounces of blood the mean quantity to be drawn in the acute rheumatism, whereas this disease as it now appears in the London hospitals will not bear above half that evacuation. Vernal intermittents are frequently cured by a vomit and the bark, without venesection, which is a proof that at present they are accompanied with fewer symptoms of inflammation than they were wont to be. This advantageous change, however, is more than counterbalanced by the introduction of a numerous class of nervous aliments, in a greater measure unknown to our ancestors, but which now prevail universally, and are complicated with almost every other distemper. The bodies of men are enfeebled and enervated, and it is not uncommon to observe very high degrees of irritability under the external appearance of great strength and robustness. The hypochondriac, palsies, cachexies, dropsies, and all those diseases which arise from laxity and debility are in our days endemic everywhere, and the hysterics, which used to be peculiar to women as the name itself indicates, now attacks both sexes indiscriminately. It is evident that so great a revolution could not be effected without the concurrence of many causes, but amongst these I apprehend the present general use of tea holds the first and principal rank. The second cause may perhaps be allotted to excess in spirituous liquors. This pernicious custom owes its rise to the former, which, by the lowness and depression of spirits it occasions, renders it almost necessary to have recourse to what is cordial and exhilarating, and hence proceeds those odious and disgraceful habits of intemperance with which too many of the softer sects of every degree are now, alas, chargeable. These are the sentiments of a character distinguished for his elaborate researches and judicious discoveries in almost every branch of liberal science. It may therefore be safely concluded that the general manner of using India tea morning and evening has been, and is, the principal cause of the greater part of the diseases with which the natives of Europe are now afflicted. When it is considered that the first meal which is taken to recruit the body after the loss it sustains from insensible perspiration of the preceding night, and to prepare it for the avocations of the succeeding day, is India tea, who can be surprised that nature should rapidly become the victim of disease? Thus, instead of being supported by nutritious aliment, its nerves are enfeebled, its spirits diminished, and all its functions enveloped with the gloom of melancholy. Even in the afternoon, when nature is exhausted by care and fatigue, we fly for refreshment to tea, which instead of bracing still further relaxes the unnerved system. 
such are the evil effects of the imprudent manner in which this pernicious drug is so constantly and universally used but how must these evils appear in their extent when the following view is taken of india teas with regard to their various injurious effects in all the physical experiments that have been made upon india teas there is perhaps none that shows its acid astringency more than one tried by the above writer dr priestley endeavouring to trace the differences and ascertain the astringency and bitterness of vegetables reciprocally bear to each other he imagined he had found they were distinct and separate properties by the following experiment taking two pieces of calf skin just stripped from the calf he emerged them into cold infusions of green and bohea tea at the expiration of a week he found they were hard and curled up and that there was no sensible difference between them he therefore concluded that this experiment afforded a striking proof of india tea differently affecting a dead and living fiber thus he considered as the greatest effect of a medicine but with deference to so distinguished an author i cannot but attribute this astringency of the skin to the particular properties of india tea for all physical as well as medical experience proved that vegetable produce affords some that are astringent and others that are relaxant of the dead as well as the living fibre oak bark is equally astringent and hardens the fibres of the hide as well as it braces the living nerve of our bodies therefore the effect produced by the india tea upon the dead skin only proves what we have before related that an infusion of it has a peculiar effect which being too frequently applied to the nerves destroys their tensity by their fine fibres being either broken or relaxed by overbracing were any astringency to be constantly taken it must ultimately produce more or less such an effect so that while the above experiment of the learned philosopher demonstrates that india tea has the power of astringing the dead as well as the living fibres it does not prove that astringency bitterness are separate qualities on the contrary bitterness seems to be the characteristic taste of all that has the tendency to contract whatever is the subject of its application thus galls bark rhubarb chamomile tea etc etc are all bitter and astringent it is therefore the immoderate use of such an astringent that ultimately relaxes and debilitates like the too frequent bracing of a drum or any other stringed musical instrument destroys its tensity the body is unnerved by the overstretching of its fibres although we sometimes differ with the celebrated doctor in part of the conclusion he has drawn from his experiment yet the following sentiments so perfectly coincide with all our observations upon india teas that we are happy to have the opportunity of corroborating our own with the sentiments of so eminent a philosopher he says from his experiments quote, it appears that green and bohea teas are equally bitter strike precisely the same black tinge with green vitriol and are alike astringent on the simple fibre from this exact similarity in so many circumstances one should be led to suppose that there would be no sensible diversity in their operation on the living body but the fact is otherwise green tea is much more sedative and relaxant than bohea and the finer the species of tea the more debilitating and pernicious are its effects as i have frequently observed in others and experienced in myself this seems to be a proof that the mischiefs ascribed to this oriental vegetable do not arise from the warm vehicle by which it is conveyed into the stomach but chiefly from its own peculiar qualities unquote. dr hugh smith in his treatise on the action of the muscles justly says that an infusion of india tea not only diminishes but destroys the bodily functions thea infusum nervo musculo verane ad multum virus multices minuit perdit 
Newman, in his chemistry, says that when fresh gathered, teas are said to be narcotic and to disorder the senses. The Chinese, therefore, cautiously abstain from their use until they have been kept twelve months. The reason attributed for bohea tea being less injurious than green is, being more hastily dried, the pernicious qualities more copiously evaporate. Tea, says Dr. Hugh Smith in his dissertation upon the nerves, quote, is very hurtful both to the stomach and nerves. Frenzies, deliriums, vigilation, idiotism, apoplexies, and other disorders of the brain are all produced by the nerves being thus disarranged and debilitated. If the digestive faculty of the stomach be weakened, the body, failing of recruiting juices, must tend to emaciation, and the whole frame be rendered one system of distress and infirmity. The nerves, being thus deprived of a sufficiency of their animal spirits, must become languid, and leave every sense void of the first means of conveying to the mind the only enjoyments of our temporal existence. But if there be any class of persons to whom India tea is more peculiarly hurtful than to any other, it is that which includes the studious and sedentary, and especially those who are enfeebled with gout, stone, and rheumatism. Age, accident, or avocation cause many persons to be unfortunately ranked amongst those of the latter description. These, from their intensity of thought, want of exercise, injurious position of body, respiration of unwholesome air, and variety of other causes, have not only their animal spirits exhausted, but their liquids corrupted from the loss of necessary circulation. With these evils, India tea operates as an absolute poison. Indeed, it frequently renders those incurable who might, by other means, have been relieved. When a view is taken of the dismal effects produced by India teas, the mind seems to be bewildered in searching for the cause of using so generally a drug that is so universally destructive. It chiefly originated in a fundamental mistake of physical principles. About the time that India tea was introduced to Europe, a grievous error crept into the practice of medical professors. They falsely imagined that health could not be more promoted than by increasing the fluidity of the blood. This opinion once established, it is no wonder that mankind with one accord adopted the infusion of India tea which was then a novelty to Europe, as the best means of obtaining the above effect. By the advice of Bentico, chiefly was the pernicious custom of drinking warm liquors night and day established. To this man, and the introduction of India tea, may be ascribed that revolution in the health of Europeans which has happened since the last century. The present age, therefore, have great cause to lament, in what they suffer in nervous complaints, that their forefathers did not attend more to the scientific and judicious advice of the illustrious Duncan, Borhave, and the whole school of Leiden, who prescribed this error. Although they could not entirely prevent this physical abuse, yet their zealous endeavors did, in some degree, at first impede its progress. But, however, so powerful did novelty plead in favor of India teas, that at last general custom and prejudice bore away every barrier that had been erected by these learned and experienced physicians. This error, instead of diminishing, has increased. Most valetudinarians are now of opinion that a thick blood is the sole cause of their complaints. With this impression, they adopt what they call the diluent beverage of India teas. It can scarcely be imagined how many disorders this practice produces. It may be justly termed the box of Pandora, without even hope remaining at the bottom. End quote. Tissot says, quote, There are the prolific sources of hypochondriac melancholy, which both adds strength to and is one of the worst of disorders. End quote. He adds, quote, with regard to studious men, who are naturally weak and feeble, 
such warm beverages are more hurtful to them than to others for they are not troubled with an over-thick but on the contrary too thin a blood you are all aware continues he respectable auditors that the density of the blood is as the motion of the solids the fibres of the learned are relaxed their motions are slow and their blood of consequence thin bleed a ploughman and a doctor at the same time from the first there will be a flow of thick blood resembling inflammatory blood almost solid and of a deep red the blood of the latter will be either of a faint red or without any color soft gelatinous and will almost entirely turn them to water your blood therefore men of learning should not be dissolved but brought to a consistence and you should in general be moderate in the article of drinking and cautiously avoid warm spiritous liquors amongst the favorite beverages of the learned the same tissot observes is the infusion of that famous leaf so well known by the name of india tea which to our great detriment has every year for these two centuries past been constantly imported from china and japan this most pernicious gift first destroys the strength of the stomach and if it be not soon laid aside equally destroys that of the viscera the blood the nerves and of the whole body so that malignant and all chronical disorders will appear to increase especially nervous disorders in proportion as the use of india tea becomes common and you may easily form a judgment from the diseases that prevail in every country whether the inhabitants are lovers of tea or the contrary how happy would it be for europe if by unanimous consent the importation of this infamous leaf was prohibited which is endued only with a corrosive force derived from the acrimony of a gum with which it is pregnant having thus considered the dismal and too frequently fatal consequences of the nerves being affected it is presumed this part of the essay cannot be more interestingly concluded than by a summary of the distinct symptomatic effects attending more or less complaints of the nerves and although the following symptoms are alarming with regard to their number and variety yet the reader may be assured there is not one specified but what is either the immediate or ultimate effect of a nervous affection and which is too frequently the consequence of the violent astringency of foreign tea taken injudiciously as a constant aliment a faintness succeeding with a delusive vision of motes mists and clouds falling backwards and forwards before the distempered sight a yawning gaping stretching out of the arms twitching of the nerves sneezing drowsiness and contraction of the breast dullness debility distress and dismay with a great sense of weariness a wan complexion a languid eye a loathing stomach and an uncertain appetite which if not immediately satisfied is irremediably lost heart burning bilious vomitings belchings pains in the pit of the stomach and shortness of breath dizziness inveterate pains in the temples and other parts of the head a tingling noise in the ear a throbbing of the brain especially of the temporal arteries symptoms of asthma tickling coughs visible inflations and unusual sense affecting the olfactory nerves sometimes costive and sometimes relaxed sudden flushings of heat and suffusions of countenance in the night alternate sweats and shiverings especially down the back which seems to feel as if water was poured down that part of the body a tialism or discharge of phlegm from the glands of the throat which generally attends all the symptoms troublesome pains between the shoulders pains attended with hot sensations cramps and convulsive motions of the muscles or a few of their fibres 
sudden startings of the tendons of the legs and arms, copious and frequent discharges of pale and limpid urine, vertigos, long faintings, and cold, moist, clammy sweat about the temples and forehead, wandering pains in the sides, back, knees, ankles, arms, wrists, and somewhat resembling rheumatic pains, the head generally warm while the rest of the body is cold or chilly, obstinate watchings, disturbed sleep, frightful dreams, the nightmare, startings when awake, and the mind filled with the most terrific apprehensions, tremors of the limbs, and palpitations of the heart, a very variable and irregular pulse, periodical pains in the head, a sense of suffocation, frequent sighings, and shedding of tears, convulsive spasms of the muscles, tendons, nerves of the back, loins, arms, hands, and a general convulsion of the stomach, bowels, throat, legs, and indeed almost every other part of the body, a quick apprehension, forgetful, unsettled, and constant to nothing but inconstancy, a wandering and delirious imagination, groundless fears, and an exquisite sense of his sufferings, a gradually sinking into a nervous atrophy or consumption, a perpetual alarm of approaching death, sometimes cheerful and sometimes melancholy, without present enjoyment or future expectation of anything but increasing misery and debility. If these symptoms are inconsiderately suffered to continue, they soon terminate in palsy, hip, madness, epilepsy, apoplexy, or in some mortal disease, as the black jaundice, dropsy, consumption, etc. Having ascertained from this inquiry the injurious properties of India tea, it may naturally be expected that I should propose some article that might prove more beneficial. With this requisition I shall most readily comply, although I may expose myself to the invidious censure of having directed all my efforts to establish the celebrity of whatever article I may recommend. But being convinced that by publishing the virtue of a tea that I have investigated from physical analysis and particular observation, I may essentially serve the public, I am content to suffer the obloquy, provided it is productive of a general benefit. Having, as before observed, examined with the greatest attention the nature of most articles that have been offered as morning and afternoon beverage, there are two which claim most particularly the preference of all others that are sold under the denomination of tea. These are, first, that which was discovered by the eminent botanist Sir Hans Sloane, and the other by a botanist and physician equally celebrated, Dr. Solander. I therefore, without considering in what manner the interest of the proprietors of these tea may be individually affected, propose two articles, in order to show that my partiality or opinion of the virtues of the one could not prejudice me so far as to prevent my allowing due praise to any other possessing qualities deserving approbation. I am happy to state that, from my analysis of that invented by Sir Hans Sloane, called British Tea, I found it possesses most singular virtues for relieving many nervous complaints. But, from the same trials and experiments made on that invented by Dr. Solander, I have been convinced that, although the qualities of the former are exceedingly salutary, they are not so general in their restoration and nutritious effects as the latter. Being thus convinced of the extraordinary properties of Dr. Solander's tea, I have been induced to state, in a treatise upon their nature, preparation, and effects, reasons founded on chemical analysis, physical efficiency, and experimental observation, in support of their most eminent virtues. 
after every trial i have made of coffee chocolate and most other preparations that have been and are at present offered to the public as a substitute for tea none seem to claim the preference so eminently as that invented by dr solander from their analysis i find their virtues are of the most corrective and balsamic kind they strengthen the tone of the stomach not by astringing the solids but by lubricating the vessels sheathing the acrids and attenuating the liquids in this manner they restore the equilibrium of the oscillatory motions which establish the tone of the nervous system this being strengthened the animal spirits are enabled to dispense their reviving influence to the sensitive digestive and intellectual powers and these being thus restored to their vigor of operation a simple and moderate portion of food is rendered the most nutritious and the body is consequently established in the enjoyment of health and happiness the above virtues of the sanative tea are not here asserted as a declamatory panegyric but as the result of a physical analysis of their nature and serious examination into their mode of operating as a restorative and constant aliment without presuming their qualities to be an unlimited remedy for all complaints the nature of the preparation of this tea is compared with the causes and effects of nervous disorders from this comparison their relative virtue to such diseases are most clearly evinced and thus is this invaluable discovery proved to be the most effectual remedy for all those complaints caused by drinking foreign teas that was ever yet or may be hereafter invented in proposing to the public any simple or compound for the preserving increasing or restoring health the first object should be to explain its nature this is the principal test by which its merits can be known or mankind rationally induced to try its virtues and as this sanative tea is offered as a substitute for what is generally used as two-fourths of our aliment and which from the preceding inquiry has been found the principal cause of our present infirmities the greater necessity there is for a candid investigation of its nature impressed with the above conviction it is fairly stated that the nature of this sanative tea is not from any combination of the animal or mineral kingdom but a collection of the most salutary native and exotic herbs that are produced in the vegetable empire of nature these have not been collected by the fanatic devotees of occult qualities but by the scientific researches and personal experience of a character that is equally and justly admired for his philosophical medical and botanical knowledge the discoverer dr solander of this tea inquired into the virtues of each native and exotic herb of which it is composed not only by abstract reasoning upon its relative qualities but by the more immediate evidence of his senses by submitting each vegetable to his taste and smell he derived the most certain physical proof of its qualities thus he knew the particular virtues of each and what salutary effects they must from their preparation as a compound produce when applied as a relief for the innumerable diseases caused by drinking foreign teas not confining himself to english plants he studied and examined the virtues of exotics among which he discovered some that possess virtues he had not found in those in his own country by adopting these he has increased the salutary effects of his invaluable tea from reading hippocrates discorides and galen he found the ancients derived all their knowledge of plants by their taste and smell with these examples before him and his own propensity to study joined to his penetrating judgment it is no wonder he should have so well succeeded thus he recurred to the original mode of inquiry which first established and raised the eminence of physic neglecting that delusive principle of aristotle's philosophy which has since taught too many physicians to express the virtue of medicines by hot cold 
moist and dry, without deriving the least information from their senses, Dr. Solander, aided by chemical analysis, distinguished the virtue by the taste or odor of every plant. By this means, their specific juices he found tasted either earthy, mucilaginous, sweet, bitter, aromatic, fetid, acrid, or corrosive. From this experience, he found the observation of some botanists to be true, quote, that there is no virtue yet known in plants but what depends on the taste or smell, and may be known by them, unquote. With this infallible means of pursuing his inquiry, he formed a tea composed of herbs that are in their nature astringent, balsamic, aromatic, syphilic, and diaphoretic. These virtues combined may be said to form one of the most incomparable specifics as a nutritive and restoring aliment that has been discovered. In the astringent, the acid fixing upon the more earthly parts, the nutritious oil is more easily separated, which renders them also pectoral, cleaning, and diuretic. This part of the tea is in its nature particularly serviceable in all cases where vulnerary medicines are requisite. They particularly amend the acid in the nervous juice, and thus restore the equal motion of the spirits, which were obstructed or retarded by spasms or convulsions. By the volatile oil and volatile pungent salt, obstructions are opened, and the motions of the languid blood increase to a healthy degree of circulation. They resolve coagulated phlegm in the stomach, preserve the fluidity of the juices, and promote digestion by assisting the bile in its operation. And with regard to their balsamic and aromatic nature, these qualities warm the stomach and expel wind by rarefying the flatuous exhalations from chyle in the prima vie. These, by their sweetness, allay the sharpness of rooms and linify their acrimony. Being filled with an oily salt, they open the passage of the lungs and kidneys. By opening the pores, they extraordinarily discuss outward tumors and attenuate the internal coagulation. All these virtues may be said to be derived from the union of their balsamic oil and volatile salt. By a second class of aromatics, with which Dr. Solander composed this sanative tea, is such as have a bitter astringency joined to their volatile oil and salt. These united qualities correct acids in the stomach, cleanse the lungs, and open obstructions in the glands caused by coagulated serum, and the saline pungent oil altering the acids in the glands of the brain by correcting and attenuating its lympha and succus nervosus produces the same effect. For the lympha and nervous juices are, like other glandulous humors, liable to acidity and stagnation. Therefore these aromatics, by exciting their motion and correcting their acidities, render the liquids of the nerves more volatile, and are therefore justly termed cephalics. And as it is the property of volatiles to ascend, the reason is evident of the brain being assisted by their salutary qualities. These aromatics likewise evacuate serum from the blood, promote its circulation, and attenuate the coagulations of chyle, lympha, and succus nervosus. And here it is proper to add that all aromatics, by rarefying the blood, are cordial. There being aromatic astringents in this tea, its infusion strengthens the fibers and membranes of the stomach, and all the nervous system, in such a manner as not to destroy their tensity by that too great contraction caused by the foreign teas, and having no acids in their astringency, the blood is preserved from too great a rarefaction, which would otherwise happen from the pungency of their oily qualities. These also excite the appetite, by stimulating the natural progress of the chyle, and thus prevent its too rapid fermentation of its spiritous parts into windy flatuencies. For the same reason, vinegar is taken with hot meats and herbs. 
Having mentioned vinegar, it may not be improper to state this vegetable acid is the best antidote against the poison of any acrid herbs. That part of the tea which has a mucilaginous taste is inwardly cooler than oil, although it be different in nature. Such herbs defend the throat from the sharpness of rheums, the stomach from corrosive humors of disease or acrimonious medicines, the ureters from sharp choleric or acid urine, and lubricate the passage for the stony gravel. Their crude parts cool the heat of scorbutic blood, lessen its violent motion, and sheathe its acrid saline particles. By their different mucilaginous principles they produce the following various salutary effects. The earthy repel the cool outward inflammations. The watery, which is thick and gummous, stop fluxes and correct sharp humors. Those of an oily odor alleviate pains. Those of a pungent acrid dissolve tartarous concretions in the kidneys. From these and a variety of other salutary properties, it is evident the general nature of Dr. Solander's tea is such as to correct acrid humors, promote the secretions, restore the equilibrium between the fluids and solids, and finally to brace every part of the relaxed nervous system. The body being thus relieved from obstructions, its circulations restored, the digestive faculties invigorated, and the spirits reanimated, the debilitated constitution is reinstated in all its enjoyments of health and hilarity. It may be therefore observed that the principle of this tea is to nourish as a general aliment, while it renovates the human constitution, without having recourse to the nauseous portions of galenical preparation, or the hazardous trial of calibiate waters. As this tea is particularly salutary in all cases where mineral waters are generally recommended, it is very proper the public should be cautioned against the danger which too frequently attends the constant drinking of them. Calibiate waters, it must be acknowledged, have effected very extraordinary cures in certain cases, but when so great an author as Helmont says that such waters are fatal to all those who are afflicted with paraneumonic complaints, it is surely necessary they should be resorted to with the greatest caution, and even in complaints where they may be serviceable, it is necessary to observe whether they really possess those calibiate qualities for which they are commended. Those who have written upon their virtues assert, and with seeming propriety, that where they deposit an ochreous sediment, they are certainly dispossessed of their steely virtues. For ochre, being no other than the calx of iron, such a residue evinces the evaporation of the more eminent properties of the calibiate, by the phlogiston of the mineral escaping by its extreme volatility. Every metal deprived of this igneous principle is immediately reduced to a calx, and thus deprived of its splendor, fusibility, and other properties until restored again by the readmission of its phlogiston. Calcined lead, having lost this inflammable quality, is reduced to a red calx or mineral earth, which, if fluxed with an igneous body, such as oil, pitch, wax, fat, wood, bone, or mineral oil or bitumen, the fiery principle is resorbed, and the lead restored to its essential qualities. From these physical observations, the reader may be convinced of those mineral waters as afford such a sediment being in a state of decomposition. They are thus deprived of one of the four elements or principles of which they are all more or less composed. Every analysis of mineral waters in their perfect state has demonstrated that they possess a fixed air, a volatile alkali, a volatile vitriolic acid, and the phlogiston. If, therefore, either of these essential qualities is evaporated or corrupted, the water being in a state of decomposition must lose the virtues of a medicinal calibiate. It is only necessary to add a few further remarks in order to show in what particular complaints calibiates, even in their most perfect state, are pernicious. 
by this means many of the diseased will be guarded against a fatal error and as the prejudices in favor of such applications is so universally prevalent it is hoped a few pages allotted to this subject will be deemed a most essential service to a deluded community by removing such a pernicious partiality the health if not the lives of thousands may be saved to the great enjoyment of themselves and their relatives dr knight says very justly quote, that the explication of the manner of the operation of calibiate medicines in human bodies is grounded upon false principles and not matters of fact to wit that all calibiate preparations in a liquid form owe their medicinal efficacy to the metal dissolved whether in an aqueous or spiritous menstruum retaining its metallic texture Unquote. To avoid entering into the whole detail of this interesting argument, it is only here stated in support of the above assertion that as mineral waters are impregnated with a combination of sulfurs, salts, and earth, their virtues cannot be properly ascribed as they have been to the metals which they contain. It might be further proved that iron cannot possibly enter the blood, retaining its essential qualities, for metals in general except mercury are suspended in liquids in solutus principius or principles disengaged which are thus deprived of their metallic properties iron entering the body as a volatile vitriolic acid cannot act by its specific gravity as mercury does it therefore acts per accidens and not per se but admitting that waters however impregnated with iron are efficacious in checking all diarrhoea and other profuse evacuations by closing the relaxed vessels and in crassiting the fluids yet as they prove sometimes so astringent as to stop the natural secretions the consequences are frequently cramps dangerous convulsions which often end in fevers inflammations and mortifications their indiscriminate use should be most cautiously avoided Calibiates, thus contracting the least pervious glands, should not be taken in acute inflammations, or in any complaints that are attended with a quick and strong pulse, a plethora, or extravasation of humors. They are equally dangerous in all nervous contractions, or where the blood is got into the arteriolae, or capillary vessels. Thus, instead of acting like the sanative tea which softens, smooths, and unbends the two constringed fibers, the vitriolic salts of this mineral water but more contract the fibrillae, by operating like so many wedges, which ultimately tear, rend, or divide the tender filaments. It must, however, be admitted that mineral waters are very beneficial in cachexies, scurvies, jaundice, hypochondriacal, and hysterical affections. Having paid this tribute to their virtues, it is evident that what is above stated respecting their pernicious effects has been dictated by candor, and with no illiberal disposition to deny their absolute virtues. These few remarks have been only made in order to warn the community against a prevailing and indiscriminate use which might otherwise, in many complaints, prove at least fatal to their health, if not to their existence and as the tea discovered by dr solander possesses all the virtues of the calibiate without its dangerous principles it was an immediate duty not only to warn but direct the public in their adoption of an aliment so essential to their health and consequently temporal happiness end of section four